Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this episode, we are going to check in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy, editor and publisher of Family Tree Magazine. We'll cover the latest happenings in the genealogy world with the genealogy insider blogger, Diane Haddad. In our top tips segment, we'll be talking about mining for genealogical treasure at family reunions with author Sonny Morton. We'll be spotlighting another terrific website in the 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots list. And in the Best of Family Tree Magazine segment, we'll discuss heraldry with Sharon DiBartolo Carmack, author of the article, The Blazing Truth, from the May 2006 issue of the magazine. There's lots to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the editor's desk with Allison Stacy. Well, it's time once again to check in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. You know, with summer fast approaching, there are several genealogy conferences coming up, and I thought we could chat a little bit about that today. Um, in fact, I'm thinking by the time this episode is published, you are probably going to be in the thick of things at a Family History Expo, right? That's right. I am um, excited and getting ready to head out to Colorado for the Family History Expo that will be happening in Loveland on June 12th and 13th. We'll be exhibiting there. Um, we'll have a booth and um, be selling some CDs and giving away copies of the magazine and some handouts and things, and I'm really looking forward to it. That's one of the wonderful benefits of being at a conference, isn't it, is that you can actually you know, walk right up and, and talk to the folks, talk to you, the editors of the magazine that people are reading, um, check out the vendors who have all the different records websites, and, and really see things in action, isn't it? Yeah, it's really exciting um, at a conference, just the opportunity to be able to mingle with fellow genealogists and talk to the people who work on the products that you use all the time, be it websites or software and Family Tree Magazine, of course. Um, you get to meet a lot of really great people and get, share a lot of great ideas, and it's just a whole lot of fun. Do you get to hear from your readers? I mean, do they come up and let you know maybe how something that you, they read in the magazine helped them with one of their um, research challenges? Yes, we do. And in fact, that's probably my favorite and most gratifying part of going to these conferences is I get to meet so many people who read the magazine and listen to the podcast. In fact, at the National Genealogical Society conference last month, I had several people come up and say, hey, I recognize your voice from the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So that was pretty exciting. And we do um, often hear from folks that, you know, they find they found a particular article helpful. Or a lot of times it's um, they'll tell us that there's something in particular that they wanted to see or they'll have a question about, did we do an article on such and such topic? And so um, we're able to pass that information along. And I think it helps, you know, both ways in terms of readers feeling like they get to know us a little bit and we get to know the readers a little bit, which is really great. Um, when you sit in an office, most of the time um, you feel a little bit removed and being able to meet people um, face to face is just really, really enjoyable. 
Oh, well, I am really looking forward to going to the Southern California Genealogical Jamboree at the end of June. So that'll be happening just after this episode comes out. And I'm actually going to be there on your behalf. My daughter Lacey and I are going to be manning the Family Tree Magazine booth in the exhibit hall, which I'm really excited about because it's been so much fun to do the podcast. And I can't wait to talk to the listeners and like you say, kind of get their ideas, get their feedback, and certainly have um, all your great products there. So I appreciate you guys putting us in charge, <laughs> letting us t- take a, a stab at uh, talking to the folks there at the Southern California Genealogical Jamboree. Yeah, we appreciate you being there. Uh, we hope that um, everybody who's listening out there will be sure to stop by the booth at uh, Southern California Jamboree. And then there are some other events that we'll be at later this summer. We'd love to see you um, if you happen to be at those. Yeah, you're going to be busy. Tell us where else you'll be after Loveland. Sure. Well, you mentioned the Jamboree for Southern California. Um, We'll also be at another Family History Expo in the Salt Lake City area on August 28th and 29th. That's taking place in the Southtown Exhibition Center in Sandy, Utah. And then um, we'll also be at the Federation of Genealogical Societies Conference on September 2nd through 5th. That's in Little Rock, Arkansas at the State House Convention Center. Right. And I'm looking forward to Salt Lake. I will be there as well. So I hope all of you listeners will come on by and say hi to Allison and to me and let us know that you've heard the show. Well, Allison, before I let you go, we also have something very fun to do, and that is we have another giveaway. And last month in the podcast, we talked about offering up a Gen Class prize. Tell us uh, what the prize is, and you're going to draw a winner, right? Yes, we are. The prize is for one free class from Gen Class, and the winner is Larry Fish. Congratulations, Larry Fish. Now, we asked folks to kind of write in and give us some thoughts on what they might like to learn about in a future um, webinar, which certainly is something that you're getting into there at Family Tree Magazine and providing those live online classes and kind of webinar sessions. Did Larry have any ideas or suggestions for you? He did. He actually mentioned um, that he was interested in learning or taking a webcast on photo retouching and software. And those are actually a couple topics that we've talked about. So hopefully um, in the future, we'll be able to follow up on Larry's request. Yeah. Oh, gosh, these webinars are a great format for something like that, because not only can you hear about it, but you can really see it live in action and ask questions and interact with the instructor right there, can't you? Yeah, in fact, the last webinar that Diane Haddad and I gave um, was really great because we did census secrets and um, was, were able to demonstrate the search techniques right on screen. And in fact, we even used a few of the attendees' ancestors as our demos. Oh, how fun. So they really got to, to get some answers right then and there. Yeah. So, you know, for those of you listeners who are interested in taking a look at other upcoming webcasts, go to our website. Um, We have an online workshops page there, and we'll provide the link in the show notes. Terrific. Well, congratulations, Larry Fish. And thanks again, Allison. Uh, We will talk to you next month. All right. Thanks, Lisa. this time in the podcast where we check in with Diane Haddad, who blogs as the Genealogy Insider. Hi, Diane. Hi, how are you? Doing good. You've been busy, as always, on the Genealogy Insider blog. What kinds of things have been happening this last month since the last time we talked to you? Well, I think one big thing that 
that I've heard about is the Ancestry.com's new service that um, will sort of be an intermediary between people who can provide genealogical services and people who need genealogical services. It's called Expert Connect. And so this would be if you wanted to hire somebody to do some research for you, that type of thing? Yeah. I think they have five levels of service, anything from just, you know, a quick lookup of an index in a library to full-on research project. And it's kind of a money-making opportunity for a lot of people because anybody can sign up to provide, you know, those simpler levels of service, the lookups and record retrievals, um, for the higher levels of the more involved research projects to provide that service, um, someone would have to be considered a professional genealogist. Now, I imagine um, from what you talked about on your blog, that itself kind of opened up a can of worms, didn't it? It did a little bit because there's no um, genealogy authority that says, okay, you are a professional genealogist. So I think there was some discussion about what exactly being a professional genealogist means. So the way that um, Ancestry.com addressed it is to say, well, here are eight things that um, people tend to do when they're professionals, and someone who is going to provide this high level of genealogy service has to satisfy four of them, I think, was the number. So it's things like being published or being certified, um, being a member of the Association of Professional Genealogists. Well, that's interesting because when you think of contracting, a lot of times we think of like temporary agencies, mm-hmm. you know, where people work for, for a company. But in that case, they're oftentimes guaranteeing the work. What kind of an arrangement is it then with Ancestry putting you in touch with people who are charging for their services and Ancestry's playing a role in that? Is there any kind of coverage that you're getting a good quality product? Well, uh, with the the certain qualifications that people have to fulfill, I think right there you have at least a minimum level of security that you're working with somebody who's qualified to provide the services. Um, There's also a system where you would be able to negotiate the research project with the person and you could communicate with them. You could ask for samples of their work. You know, that's something that you would want to do in any kind of research or that you're going to hire. You want to see things that they've done before for other people. Um, And then the way that Ancestry.com benefits is they they get a cut of whatever the fee that you decide on would be. And that probably just mostly covers the fact that they are giving you a a mechanism that you can connect with, which seems to be really growing on the internet, isn't it? I mean, you can hire designers and webmasters and all kinds of people, and a lot of that's happening right online. Yeah, and of course anything in that Ancestry.com does becomes news, but there are other ways where that other companies that provide this service um, so that you can work with researchers who might live where your ancestors lived and can go to that library and get a record for you. So I actually have a few of those listed here. Yeah. Um, Genealogy Freelancers is one. And that's a site where you can post project details and then you get bids from professionals around the world so then you can look at all their bids and decide which one you like best. Genlighten is another service that is um, relatively recent and their focus is more on those lookups, record retrievals, um, 
serv- the simpler services like that. And that's one where um, if you want to make a few dollars, you can go ahead and put your name on Jen Lighton as somebody who can provide these services. Random Acts of Genealogical Kindness has been around for a while, and that's a group of volunteers who will um, do genealogy favors for expenses. So, you know, all you do is pay for the photocopies or pay for their mileage to travel to a cemetery and take a picture. And then, of course, you're encouraged to return that favor and make yourself available to other genealogists who might need, you know, some kind of service in your hometown. Exactly. And those are all great services, and it's probably great that there are some different options so you can see what works best for you and that you can hopefully find the right person for the right job. Options are always great. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Things continue to change, don't they? Just evolve. (laughs) They do. They do. But it's a wonderful way that you can get some research done in a faraway place, and you save yourself the travel costs. So really helpful these days. Well, if you want to learn more about it, I will post a link to Diane's post on the Genealogy Insider blog, which is called Ancestry.com to launch professional genealogy service, as well as links to these other companies that she's mentioning. So you'll have lots to work with. Diane, as always, thanks so much for joining us on the show. You're welcome. In her most recent Family Tree Magazine article, author Sunny Morton says that while gold digging at a family get-together is generally frowned upon, mining for genealogical treasures can build a priceless family legacy. And in today's Top Tip segment, I've invited Sunny to the show to tell us how to do it. Welcome back, Sunny. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Oh, well, you know, I just got done reading your article called Reunion Riches, which appears in the July 2009 issue of the magazine. And I've got to say, it's a veritable treasure trove of great ideas for family reunions. What prompted you to write this article? Well, I have to say that the story that I told about my mom really is what prompted me. She attended my in-laws, uh, in-laws reunion with me one year. And within 15 minutes, she knew more about my in-laws than I did. It was a little embarrassing, but also really inspiring because she really helped me see that a family reunion is just a genealogical goldmine waiting for you to dig it. Absolutely. And, you know, you had so many great ideas in this article. I'd love for you to share what are some of your favorite tips of things we should be keeping in mind when we get to go to one of these events and, and see what we can find. Well, I think that there's a couple of things that are really key, and the first is to prepare in advance. Um, I have really found that when I um, prepare a fun activity or game that people will enjoy and meet their goal of having a good time at the reunion, um, but it's also a game that helps me get information that I want for my family history research, then those, those kinds of activities are super successful, but they do require a little advanced planning. So... Um, I think my first tip is to find out who is planning a reunion, if it's not you, which it might likely be if you're the family history buff, um, and then and go, go after them and figure out how you can help plan fun activities that will feed you back some priceless information. So really making the most of the fact that you've got all these people collected in one place. And um, what, what kind of a game? Have you done something in the, in the past that kind of brought out some good information? One game that I tried at my in-laws reunion last year is that I had a whole bunch of unidentified black and white photos. I just didn't know who the people were, what was going on. So I put, I numbered each of the photos and I put them up on the wall at the reunion and then I put a huge stack of three by five index cards there. 
and a brown paper bag. And I said, for every index card you pick up, write down the name of one of those pictures on it and everything you know about that picture, including the people's names, where it was taken, and when, and why, and anything you remember about that event. And each one of those cards was an entry for a gift card. And I think I had like a $10 Walmart gift card or something, and that, that $10 expense gave me back you know, maybe five or six people would comment on each of those pictures so that it just exploded my information about those previously unidentified photos. Wow, that's a great idea because when you think about the the costs involved sometimes in subscribing to a website or, or traveling somewhere, there for $10, that was a heck of an investment. <laughs> it really was, and it got a heck of a return, I'll tell you. And they went, they had a good time too because they would try to remember things that other people didn't. Or they would tell me, now, I remember that uncle really was, you know, and he'd, they'd go off on a story. It was really fun. And it sounds like they would have had a wonderful time. What other kinds of tips do you have for us? Well, um, I think that it's important to, um, while you're there at the reunion enjoying your relatives, to also capture history in the making. Really, those pictures that I had posted on the wall were from reunions from the 1930s, the 1940s, the 1950s. And really, it's our reunion pictures that they'll be looking at 40 years from now, but that means we have to stop and take them. So I would uh, really recommend anyone that goes to a family reunion to look around and document what's happening there. That's such a, a great tip because <laughs> as a genealogist, it's so easy to get wrapped up in trying to find the past, and you forget that, gosh, going to a family reunion like that, you're really creating family history for the future, aren't you? We really are. And I think it's important to, to understand that these, these are priceless moments in the here and now and not just the, not just the moments we've already missed. Yeah, I love the, the comment that you made in the article. You said, in other words, your interest in deceased relatives shouldn't interfere with family relationships in the here and now. And I, I think that's a really great thing to be keeping in the back of our minds while we're collecting that past information. That really leads right into my last important tip that I hope everybody would take out of this article, and that is know when to quit. <laughs> Go <laughs> armed with your charts and get fill out as much as you can, get interviews, take pictures, get as many stories as you can, but know when it's time to turn off the tape recorder or set the camera down and, and participate in what's going on around you. These are priceless family opportunities that don't come around again in just the same way. Exactly. And in fact, one of the tips that really jumped out at me that I noticed was you were talking about planning ahead. And it seems like that kind of fits in with what you were just talking about. Because if you do your planning ahead, and you've kind of thought some things through, it does give you a little more room to then enjoy it while you're there and be present in the moment, doesn't it? I really agree, because when you do that kind of thing in advance, then you're not running around at the reunion looking for tape or trying to make copies or doing any other number of things that you might otherwise get stuck doing if you're trying to, do, to put together these great activities. Exactly. Well, I tell you, you guys will really enjoy this article because not only has she got some wonderful stories and examples that you've talked about here in the article, Sunny, but you've got a wonderful reunion checklist. So it, you'll help us with the planning, some of the things that you've learned along the way, you know, months ahead, weeks ahead. And, and I love that because when you go in prepared, then you get the most out of it. And like you say, you can really enjoy it. 
Well, if you'd want to learn more about having a family reunion, getting the most out of it, and um, getting those wonderful treasures that you'll find there, check out the July 2009 issue of the Family Tree magazine and, and read Reunion Riches. Sunny, as always, a terrific article, and it was a joy to talk to you again. Thanks so much. In today's 101 Best Websites for Genealogy segment, I've got a website custom-made for you for your Swedish genealogy research. And to tell us all about it is Kathy Mead from Genline.com. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you for inviting me to speak today. Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on here. And um, I know that Swedish research has come a long way with the advent of the Internet. And, you know, Genline has really been a leader, I think, in bringing Swedish records online. So I was hoping that you could just tell the listeners a little bit about what we can find on the website, kind of an overview of Genline. Okay, thank you. Yes, our site is www.genline.com. And what we have is we have actually access to the images of the original Swedish church records from the 1600s and up to 1920. And we have about 99.7% of the records from the 1600s to 1898. And currently we are in the process of actually adding the records from 1898 to 1920. And we've got half of Sweden completed as of today. So right now we have about 17 million images online or that's approximately 34 million pages from the church books. Wow, that's a lot of Swedish records. And I mean, you don't even have to travel the ocean to get there. <laughs> it's amazing. And listen, you know, these type of records are births, marriages and deaths, also registers of people moving in the parish and moving outside the parish. And then also, what is unique to Sweden and also to Finland are these clerical survey records or the household examination records. And it's almost the equivalent of a yearly census record. So with these records, for many people within Sweden, you're able to trace a person from birth to immigration or birth to death. That is what is so nice about doing Swedish research versus other countries. You bet. And so they can do a search on the website, see what you have in your indexes, and from there they're going to digital record images, correct? That's correct. What you have to know in order to do uh, research with the Swedish church records is you have to know the parish where the person came from. So essentially you have to have a name, the parish, and then also a significant date, such as the immigration date or the birth date. And actually on our home page, people can go right there, and it says if you're beginning Swedish genealogy, and there's a whole write-up as far as what you need to know if you don't have that parish. And also, we will actually try to look up the parish for the person. We have a form for people to fill out, and it is free for that particular service. Oh, that's great. that we can find it, but if you fill out the form, we will get back with the person within a week saying, yes, we found it, or no, we didn't find it. Oh, that's wonderful. So we don't have to wait to find that information to be able to get online and start using Genline. You guys might actually be able to help us get started. That's correct. Now, I know that you guys are working on some new projects and bringing out new records all the time. What can we look forward to coming up the road here? Okay. As I mentioned, we're adding the birth, marriages, and deaths up to 1920 right now. And then after that, we're going to be adding additional um what they're called for Shamling or parish records, up to 1937, sort of this yearly census household inventory, and then also the birth, marriages, and death records up to 1937. 
So we're going to finish the records up to 1920, and then we're going to start adding additional records up to 1937. Well, it's great to have such recent records. Yes, a lot of people are looking forward to that. And another thing that we are doing right now, we're beginning to index the household examination records. And this has been a challenge for many Swedish researchers because you need to know the farm or the village within the household examination record. Usually when you do the research, you look for the birth record, you find the birth record, then the birth record is the farm or the village where the person lives in. Then you go to the corresponding household examination book and look for that farm or village to find more information about that household, all the members in the family. Some of the books have village indexes, but some don't, so you have to page through it page by page. Well, we're beginning to index that, and that makes it much easier. We've gotten, we have now over 300 parishes that have been indexed completely, and then there's some more that are in progress. So, and it's happening, you know, it's continuing every day. People are just thrilled to see the indexing of these uh, parish household examination records. I can imagine so, because um, in many ways, having a digital record uh, doesn't really do you a lot of good if you can't find it, right? That's correct. (laughs) And you guys are making that so much easier. And then another thing, too, is we're actually adding a capability. What Genline did, you know, Genline was actually the first company to come out with these online digital records for Swedish records. And this was in 2002 when the first county was completed. And these are scanned records of the microfilms. At that time, a lot of people had dial-up. So there was a compromise, you know, versus download speed and clarity. And now Genline has added the technology so that people can, they can look at the record, and then if they want an improved image, then there's a capability of downloading an improved image. And the conversion for this is gradually going on at this point in time. Not all records have the capability of getting the improved image, but we are working on that also on a day-by-day basis. Well, that sounds terrific. So many new innovations and making it, giving us the encouragement to, to go forward on our Swedish records and our Swedish research. And if you want to try your hand at it, you can just visit Genline at genline.com. And we will have the link for you in the show notes for this episode. And as Kathy said, even if you don't know that parish name yet, they've got lots of online resources to help you find out what you need to find out in order to be able to start utilizing those records. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us on the show today and telling us more about our uh, Swedish research. Okay, thank you very much for inviting me. Well, in today's Best of Family Tree magazine segment, I'm really happy to welcome back to the show Sharon DiBartolo Carmack. Hi, Sharon. Hi, how are you, Lisa? I'm doing good, and we are um, kind of going into the vaults of the Family Tree magazine archives and, and looking at some of these older articles, and you had a great one back in May of 2006, not too long ago, called The Blazon Truth, and I thought it would be fun to have you come on the show because it addresses some oftentimes misconceptions in the world of genealogy, and I thought it would be a great way to kind of go back and get a refresher course on heraldry. And I guess my first question is, what is heraldry? Well, heraldry is the study of coats of arms. The coat of arms. Now, we've all heard that term, and, you know, you go to a conference or a festival or something, and people are selling coats of arms, and you tell them what your last name is. Now, you have to help us understand, does every family have a coat of arms? Okay. 
Okay, that's the first misconception. Coats of arms were not assigned to families. There is no such thing as a family crest or a family coat of arms. Coats of arms were assigned to individuals, and they were inherited by the eldest son. And in order to claim a coat of arms, you have to be in an unbroken line of descent from the eldest son to the eldest son to the eldest son to the eldest son. That's the only legitimate way to claim a coat of arms. Um, Now, siblings of the eldest son, uh, brothers and sometimes daughters, would also have their individual coat of arms, and it would start with the father's and the eldest son's coat of arms, and then they would make variations to it. Like um, if there was a lion on the coat of arms, perhaps in the uh, father's or the eldest son's, it may be shown in profile, whereas the next son's, the face of the lion would be showing. So they would vary it a little bit for the other children and also for daughters. That's so interesting. How do you suppose it kind of morphed in people's understanding from the individual coat of arms into somehow being representative of a family? Well, that's very difficult to figure out why why people got this misconception. I can only assume that it stemmed from our colonial ancestors. Most of our ancestors uh, were not the eldest son. If they were the eldest son, they would have stayed um, at home in England or Europe or wherever because they were the ones who were going to inherit the land. Oh, yeah. So it's the second and third and fourth sons who came to America. And because our society was not based on nobility, it wasn't based on a class system, um, the immigrants would take, if they were eligible or had a legal claim to a coat of arms, would take that and make that quote into a family crest. But since our society is not based on that, in order to claim that crest, Legally, depending on what country the crest came from, whether it's England or Scotland or Ireland or Wales or or Germany or Italy or wherever, um, you would have to prove your line of descent in order to legitimately claim that coat of arms. Okay, and and that brings up my next question, which is, does this whole concept of heraldry really just apply to European countries? Um, You named off some in the British Isles and some in the European continent. Um, How do we know which countries would have them? Well, that's something you would have to do individual research on. Like at the Family History Library in Salt Lake City, or if you go online and, and look at the library catalog, you can type in your locality, your country of origin, and there should be a subject heading for heraldry or coats of arms. And a lot of these have been published in books. How we got the term heraldry is heralds, king's helpers, went door to door and recorded all these coats of arms in what are called visitations. And so they would visit the house and draw, the heralds would then draw the coats of arms, and then they would publish all these books and directories and who claimed it. It's almost like owning a piece of land. You know, you'd go to the courthouse and record your land description. Well, that would be the same thing with the coats of arms. So you would just need to research the country and then see most countries had a class system, and therefore a lot of the countries had coats of arms. And I can assume then that that means that we're typically talking about 
nobility? Would it be anyone of wealth, or did you have to come from nobility? Pretty much anyone of wealth who owned land. It, it oh. evolved to the landed gentry. How they originated is, um, if you'll visualize the knights and their shining armor and everything else, when you have all that armor on, you can't tell one person from another. So they had to have a way to be able to tell one knight from another, especially during jousting. You wanted to know who you were rooting for. Mm-hmm. And so like in football, you have team colors and, and a logo. Well, they did the same thing, and they would put this cloth over vest over their coats of arms, which they put it over their armory, which is their coat of arms. And that's oh. how the name came about. And that way you could distinguish one person from another. And then eventually it was anyone who owned land would be entitled to claim a coat of arms or have one designed. So it expanded out from the idea right. of just being the first son. Right. Well, no, it still was the first son who inherited it, but then the other sons then would make variation to theirs so that they would have their own individual coat of arms. And that's the biggest thing to remember. Coats of arms are individual. They are not family crests, and each individual had his own. It may be a variation of the father's and the eldest son's. So that brings up the question of how does heraldry and coat of arms apply to the genealogist? If you actually trace yourself back to a a family and therefore an individual, and you realize you descend from somebody who had a coat of arms, Mm -hmm. what does that mean for us? What do we do with it as genealogists? Well, we can, you know, use it to illustrate our books and and hang on our living room walls and everything like that. But it really, unfortunately, doesn't have any major significance in terms of, you know, as my mother would say, that and a nickel will get you a cup of coffee. You know, it's not really going to do a whole lot for your, your, um, you're not going to get invited to the White House or anything when you find your coat of arms. But the thing of it is, a lot of the genealogies are published in these books with the coats of arms because obviously if they're passing down from first son to first son to first son then those kinds of things are recorded in the heraldry books and the one that's the most common for England that comes to mind is called Burke's Peerage and there are multi-volumes of that and again other countries have theirs in published form too and they'll give a little genealogy they'll show the lineage so in that respect it's helpful. Well, Sharon, you've shed a lot of light on an area uh, that really has been kind of in the dark to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, and, and I appreciate that. And if you want to learn more about heraldry, read The Blazon Truth, Sharon's article, which appears in the May 2006 issue of the magazine. I'll have a link to uh, that downloadable issue if you want to order it on the website. And uh, Sharon, hey, thanks so much for joining us. And again, bringing this to light and helping us understand kind of the connection with our family history. You're quite welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me for the June 2009 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and visit the Genealogy Insider blog for all the latest genealogy news on a daily basis. You'll find it at blog.familytreemagazine.com insider. Next, check out the websites in the show notes for the upcoming genealogy conferences and see if one fits your schedule. 
And if you do make the trip, be sure and come by the Family Tree Magazine booth in the exhibit hall and say hi. Then start planning your next family reunion by following Sonny Morton's great tips in the article Reunion Riches, which you'll find in the July 2009 issue of the magazine. And then finally, get out your May 2006 issue of the magazine to read Sharon DiBartolo Carmack's article on heraldry to gain more insight into the myths and the truths about coats of arms, crests, and badges. And if you need to order a back issue, you can do so right there on our website. And I'll have all the links that I've mentioned on today's show for you on the webpage for this episode. You can find us on the web at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. And of course, if you have any questions or comments, I hope you'll email me at ftmpodcast at gmail.com. And if you haven't done so already, be sure and subscribe to the podcast for free through iTunes so that you'll get each and every episode. It's free and you can download it from apple.com slash iTunes slash download. And we have two great videos for you in the Family Tree Magazine podcast pages that will walk you through downloading iTunes and subscribing to this show for free. So thanks so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I hope that you'll visit me at my website, genealogygems.tv, where you can listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems podcast, and Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. Both shows are also available through iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.